Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. My wife and I spent a couple weeks and drove a couple thousand miles from Wisconsin to Oregon, and part of my reward, in addition to the great adventures we had on our journey, is that here at the annual gathering of the Friends General Conference, there are always many great activists, world healers, and artists, and we're meeting one of them today. We're joined here in person at Monmouth, Oregon, by Susan Cousins. That's Cousins spelled C-O-Z-Z-E-N-S, who has a long pedigree of working for social change through public policy research and advocacy. Her Ph.D. in sociology is a tool that she has compassionately, fruitfully, and faithfully wielded with the National Science Foundation, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Georgia Tech, and currently with Quaker Voice on Washington Public Policy. Her dynamic energy has invigorated the Quaker Voice efforts, and we have the benefit of hearing that voice as she joins me in person at this year's FGC gathering. Susan, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. You told me before the interview started that you've never had an interview on radio, TV, or how? Give me the facts. What I mentioned is I don't think my name has ever appeared on an FGC gathering program before, (laughs) but I have had my little moments on radio and TV. TV and radio and currently and in the past in your various professions, it seems to me that you've risen to significant heights in educational levels, vice provost or whatever. Those are the kind of people who get quoted in public. Yeah, I've been interviewed for media, mostly in my research area from time to time. But the one little piece that recently emerged is that right after I graduated from college, I worked with the Illinois Women's Abortion Coalition, which this was before Roe v. Wade. And I was a a main speaker at one of their rallies, and the local TV station filmed me doing that. And a little clip from that showed up in a recent movie that's been produced on women who were doing abortions in a network on their own in Chicago at that time. So it was that was my little moment of fame that my grandchildren have even seen me in. Did you receive any recriminations about that? Abortion is such a laden topic for so many people. After 911, part of a local peace group in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live, we organized a demonstration, a presentation, a rally, that kind of thing. And the local TV station interviewed me about it. And all I said was, you know, we should have considered other alternatives besides invading Afghanistan. And the next day, my wife was home. I wasn't. Got a call asking for me. And then my wife said, well, you know, I can take a message, have him call you back. And he said, you just deliver a message for me. He should have gone up with the Twin Towers. So it doesn't take much to inflame some people in the populace. And talking about abortion, you could have probably got that kind of feedback, too. 
This was a long time ago, and it was before the Supreme Court decision that actually made either legalized or illegalized all the things that we had demands on at that point in the direction that we wanted. And frankly, I think that debate has gotten more polarized since that time and continues in that direction, as far as I can tell. But at any rate, that was my one moment on television. And my husband says he wouldn't have recognized me from the picture of me at age 22. <laughs> well, but you've been involved in this kind of thing for a long time in public policy concerns, shall we say. Your field specifically, I guess, is sociology, and some people may not understand the full difference between sociology and psychology or political science. Educate us, please. Uh, most people <laughs> don't really know what sociology is. It's not something anybody studies in high school generally. So I have been involved in political activism for quite a long time. And I think partly because of that, what fascinated me about sociology when I was introduced to it was that it looks for the connections between the micro things that we do in our everyday lives and macro patterns of various sorts. So it's a good discipline for thinking about what would I change in my life to actually change the big patterns that we want to change in society. For instance, what can I do to dismantle racism where I am with what I'm doing every day or in my community that will help move the whole country toward a time when we're not as divided over that issue? What happens individually for people is often called psychology. So what is the overlap or dovetailing of psychology and sociology? Psychology focuses more on the individual and sociology focuses always about patterns of interaction or broader patterns within society. But there is a branch of psychology called social psychology, and there's also a branch of sociology called social psychology. So there's definitely overlap. You're right, Mark. Well, and activism has been your thing. You were active already politically before you became a sociologist. So that's a big part of it. Aren't scientists supposed to be objective and neutral? They don't have a horse in that race, so to speak. You're just studying the facts. Every scientist, including social scientists, is also a human being. At the same time, somewhere situated socially, I mean, I'm from a white middle-class suburb from outside Philadelphia and had excellent educational path into my PhD program. And so all that and the things that I care about go into what I study with my social science methods. And then the social science methods themselves are just agreements that we have among social scientists about how do we get as close to the facts as we can. But which facts are we looking at? And what questions are we asking, which leads us to look at them? That's all stuff that's very values-based and is something that I've tried to actually build into my research more and more over the years. What do you mean by building in the values-based part of it? I, it makes perfect sense to me that you have to identify your values. Do sociologists not usually do that? Oh, they do. You were the one who thought that maybe because we're also scientists that we were only objectives and only concerned with, I guess, any old fact. But we don't study random <laughs> facts or, or random patterns. For me, in terms of my research, because I really have been a researcher for a very long time as well, 
in choosing the problems that I studied, for instance, in choosing my dissertation topic, I was more shaped by what my professors expected, things that were kind of emerging in the field of sociology at the time. And as I brought that part of my life into meeting for worship over the many years that I've been both a Quaker and a researcher, I found that I really wanted to let my spiritual commitments be reflected in what I was studying. And I steered closer and closer to issues, usually broad issues in society that I thought were more important. So over time, that shifted me toward studying inequality, economic inequality, social and socioeconomic inequality. And in particular, when you start looking at inequality, the global scale of inequality becomes really important. So that's, I moved toward looking at the connections between what I did in the policy world when I was in an agency in Washington, connections between that kind of policy and global inequalities. And all that reflected very much who am I as a human being? What does it mean to be an American? It reflected my deep values very much. The choice of what I was studying. I have a good friend back in Eau Claire who teaches environmental public health, and he does studies, done studies related to all kinds of things that he has strong feelings about. But when each time he talks about doing his research, he talks about that step back that he has to take to make sure he's not injecting his values into the results. How do you do that? Because you've got your spiritual, religious anchoring, which is a base for life, I think. And here you've got decision making out in the world. How do you keep them separate? This is what methods are about in any field. And in social science, you have a whole set of questions to answer about why have I chosen these case studies? Why are they related to the questions that I'm going to ask? If I'm going to interview people, and I've done a lot of research using interviews, what questions am I going to ask? Are they going to allow a variety of answers rather than being leading? And then in the analysis phase, am I actually paying attention to everything that I heard in the field? And there are also a set of qualitative analytic tools that help with that. They don't take the person out completely, but it means that my research would past the standards that my colleagues in the field have for this has been solidly done. She's not just a journalist reporting on what they want to see in the area. Well, let's review a bit of the history that got Susan Cousins to where she is today. Part of the broad path, you were in Chicago at one point, evidently. Then you were at Rensselaer Polytechnic. Uh, you probably had other steps in between as well. But I almost went to Rensselaer. I got a special scholarship from them because I was high level in math in my high school. You were there, and then you were down in Georgia, and maybe I've missed other places in between there, and now you're up in Washington State. So so I went to college at Michigan State, went to Chicago for a year and a half after college and before graduate school, and that's where that first story came from. I went to graduate school at Columbia University in New York. Then I was actually living in Philadelphia at the time, and I got a job while I was still doing the PhD in the research branch of an organization in Philadelphia that led me into being a policy analyst. And this is really the beginning of the policy coming into the story at the National Science Foundation in Washington. And I did that for four years, during which time I was finishing off the 
PhD. So I got what they call Potomac fever in Washington, except that it turned out to be more sort of general interest in the policy process and the politics and the policy analysis parts of those processes. So finishing the PhD and coming from the National Science Foundation, I then actually started teaching at the Illinois Institute of Technology back in Chicago again, Mark. So it's another loop back in that direction. And then was recruited to come back east to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where I was an assistant professor and associate professor. Got pulled back into Washington for a couple of years at NSF and got to full professor at that point. And then after another couple of years at the National Science Foundation, as the head of the policy shop there at that point, I really wanted to get back to campus. And that's when I went to Georgia Tech as the chair of the School of Public Policy and retired from there and then came to the Northwest. That's a different part of the story. And why the Northwest? I mean, because I I think the Midwest is the obvious place to go because we're the best insulated from climate change. Oh, that's not what my uh, recently Midwest colleagues in the Northwest tell me about (laughs) climate change in the Midwest. But at any rate, that one's really easy. Uh, My husband and I have one daughter. She has four kids. They are all here in the place where I am living on the east side of Seattle. And four grandkids are a very powerful magnet, let me tell you. That's why we're here and we love it. Well, let's talk about the track of your interests. You mentioned before you were a sociologist, being active when you're 22 in Chicago. Which issues captivated you along the way that got you into inequality? How did inequality become the thing that's the center of your studies? You know, I think that that interest was there all along, and then the opening came up at a certain point because of my values, because I've really been working for social change for a long time. I'm a child of the 50s. I have memory of seeing the civil rights movement on our black and white television at home and and my mother being very excited about the change that was coming in the U.S. So working for social change, there are a variety of things that you can study, and I think that stayed with me through the years. But there is a big pathway through studying the scientific community, the structure of the scientific community, and then policies that are made for science, technology, and innovation, which is my policy area. So it's not exactly a straight pathway, but the emergence, the way that it's developed in my life even goes beyond research because in the university environment, and particularly as a senior administrator, which I was at Georgia Tech, it was very difficult for me to actually live out my politics. And when Donald Trump was elected, I realized oh, I do need to retire at that time that I thought that I was going to (laughs) retire after five years as vice provost because I need to get active on social change and not be sitting on the sidelines. So that then opened up lots of possibilities for things that I've done out here in the Northwest. And I want to talk about those details as we go on too, Susan. There is a tension in our society now about truth. There are people who have alternative facts right, that those phrases. A sociologist, your values may indicate to you where you want to shine the spotlight, where you want to do the fact gathering, but it does not dictate the end results, the the statistics you come up with, right? And by the way, my era of study was, I was physics. 
computer science physics was one of my majors and a physics major separately. So I'm very used to fact-based measurements, but values still indicate which area I'm interested in, what I want to do with the technology that ends up resulting. Our society since the 1950s, 60s, 70s has become less fact-based, particularly our decision-making, our the science. I don't know if you understand what I'm asking. It's just are facts less accepted in general society now than they were in the 50s and 60s? I don't have a great comparative base for that, but it certainly seems shocking and appalling the extent to which different groups in U.S. society accept different versions of reality, even a a very specific reality. And of course, the 2020 election is a great example of that. But I don't have any solutions for that. I'm sorry to say what, yeah, one of the things that you do. I wanted the solutions. Yeah, sorry. When you study actually the way science is used in the policy process, one of the first things you learn is that the facts don't drive decisions at all. So even among those people in our political system who do care about facts, and I think there are a lot of them, certainly the research communities that orient to the big picture issues that we have out there care very much about the facts. They check their facts. They gather up their statistics. They have their one-page policy briefs. They're really committed to that. And at least some of the decision makers that they're speaking to also care about the facts. I can't say that all of them do, at least judging by the Washington State legislature. But the existence of a really great fact-based argument for a policy option does not determine whether that option is actually taken. Instead, there's good theories in political science on when this happens. And a key thing is something called windows of opportunity. When there's a lot of attention being given in the public to a particular policy issue, and particularly if something like a crisis has directed attention in the direction of the change that's been advocated for a while, that's the moment to move legislation. And then the information that you're marshalling is most likely to be influential at that point. Good example of window of opportunity, just taking it from Washington State, but this was true across the country, is the police reform legislation was relatively easy to get through, at least in the states with liberal majorities and legislatures at the time of the George Floyd uprising. And a lot of the state legislatures convened just after that uprising, got everybody's attention. The police didn't have a lot of sympathy at that point. So there was a lot of police reform legislation passed at that time, even though facts had been there for a long time. We actually, we know that the list of names of people who'd been murdered by the police were quite long before that, but that was the moment of media attention that created a window of opportunity. And then the facts are brought in. The other thing about facts in the policy process is that both sides of any divisive issue have their facts, and they have their statistics that they bring in. And so what often happens is that the debate which sounds like it's a debate about truth or reality, ends up being over methods because one side wants to use one set of methods and the other side wants to use another set of methods. 
We had an example of that in the Washington State Legislature this past session. There was a bill being considered that would roll back some of the reforms on vehicular pursuits under what circumstances is a police officer allowed to chase a vehicle. The people who were in favor of keeping the reform in place had counted up the uh, number of deaths before the law was passed and the number of deaths afterwards, including using media accounts, and said, this bill as it stands absolutely saves lives. Leave it as it stands. And then Lo and behold, the opposition uh, trotted out another social scientist who said this thing would never pass peer review and get into a journal. They used media accounts. So they had this methods battle over something that then, of course, the politics, the actual stakeholders and their weight in the process made the decision in the end. What was the decision? They did roll back the earlier reform bill to some extent to allow more vehicular pursuits, not quite as tight as it had been before. Because, of course, the police were complaining that the criminals were getting away and they weren't allowed to. Huh. That's, that's a very excellent example you give, Susan. Again, we're speaking with Susan Cousins, amongst other things. She's active with Quaker Voice on Washington Public Policy website. QuakerVoiceWA.org. The WA is W-A. So QuakerVoiceWA, all one word, dot org. You'll find a number of articles that she's posted there. Some I saw 20-some articles that are on there right now. But written by other people, because I do the postings. When we give testimony, we, okay. we post our <laughs> testimony on the, on the website. So I, I only posted most of that. I may have posted some of my testimony that I sent in. So again, that's QuakerVoiceWA.org, the WA for Washington. The link's on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Obviously, you'll look there and you'll find my interview with Susan under Spirit in Action, the program that you're listening to. Spirit in Action has been going for 18 plus years, 19 years, I guess now. How time flies when you're doing something that you love. And we are here to try and raise up the best light in world healing that we can. For me, I have to look for the deep inspirations. I want to ask Susan more about the deep inspirations that empower her decades and decades of work trying to make this a better world. Some people do things only for money or for power, but I have a feeling uh, I'll let Susan argue with me about it. There are other things driving her. Our website again, NorthernSpiritRadio.org. On the site, we have all of our programs the last 19 years. You'll find connections to the stations across the U.S., between 35 and 40 of them that carry our programs. As a matter of fact, in our display sitting over there, there's a list that's a couple years old of the stations where we're broadcast. And also on our site, we love to have your feedback. Please post comments, rate our programs, and give us suggestions for us other guests that we're going to have. And you can, of course, also donate via our site. That's how we do our funding. And significantly, and I want to ask you a little bit about this, Susan, we do not take funding from commercial sources, from corporations, nor do we take from government, because often there's some hidden agenda that drives 
the people who get the funding from those sources. We take our funding from you, our listeners, for Northern Spirit Radio. We depend upon you. If we're going to be sustainable, it's because you help make us sustainable. So please help out if you can, and please help those community radio stations, which are such a wonderful independent source of news and music that you get nowhere else. So please support them as well. Again, Susan Cousins is here right now. She's quick voice on Washington public policy. She was at Georgia Tech, Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts. She was at Rensselaer Polytechnic before that, and she's been other places. But all in all, she's been working on the intersection of sociology and policy. I hope I stated that well. I don't want to misrepresent yeah, anything. Fine. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your deep history. You talked about being Quaker now. Did you start out somewhere else, and what led you in that direction, and how is that tied with your advocacy of these important issues? I did not start out as a Quaker. I was brought up as a Presbyterian. As a teenager, it felt like my Presbyterian worship services were telling me things that I should believe that I wasn't feeling real deeply, so I started looking around for alternatives. What led me to Quakerism was Actually, this was during the Vietnam War, and at a Presbyterian youth retreat, a conscientious objector who was a Quaker came and spoke with us. And what I was really impressed with from him was his very calm and peaceful spirit. He was a very centered person, and I thought, wow, this is the kind of person that I would like to be. And that led me to explore the Quaker world more. It took me quite a while to get into regular attendance, and that happened at the time that my husband and I got married in a in a meeting, actually, and I really found home in Quaker meetings. So the exploration of the divine that I experience in meeting is very much connected to what I care about in the world, who I care about in the world, and, and what I've done in the research and activism agendas. And that's been something that's deep plowing over many, many, many years, over decades of that connection getting deeper and, and deeper. My ex-wife was raised no religious affiliation. Her parents were kind of anti that. But when she was seven or eight, she decided she wanted to go to church. And her parents said, well, okay, if you're going to do that, there's four in our neighborhood and the least damaging we can send you to is the Presbyterians. So that she had a very good, and it formed a really good base for her values, but somehow, I guess spiritually, it didn't work for you. I'm trying to figure out what the jump was because certainly a lot of equal rights, I think, was advocated Presbyterians all the way back as far as I know. Obviously, there's exceptions to the extent of that. But did your values change going from Presbyterian to Quaker? No. It, I mean, that kind of shift is not something that rests in the kind of halo of things around where your life is. I think really the reason I'm a Quaker is because the center of our practice and belief is wordless. And almost all the other ways of worshiping that I've experienced just have too many words in them and not enough space for the inner light to shine. Well, let's talk some more about your research related to inequality. You said that's where you got led in your studies, in your research, and in your work, I think, also with the National Science Foundation. Somehow you got called in terms of inequality. 
talk about the various levels of inequality that you've been researching about and that you've been motivated in terms of doing your work? Sure. In my professional life, looking at global inequality, the questions I was asking were how are science, technology, and innovation either contributing to or helping to reduce global inequality? And by global inequality, it's very concrete. We're actually very affluent in the U.S. Large percentage of the U.S. population is in the top 5 or 10% of the income distribution globally. So we're just in an environment with lots of resources compared to the poverty that exists in a lot of what I call the global south. There's various terms for that. And when a new technology is introduced, it's usually by firms in the north and shaped for affluent consumers. And whatever the benefits are that come from that technology, whether it's genetically modified foods or whether it's new biomedical diagnostic techniques or, say, COVID vaccines, to use a recent example, the benefits are most easily absorbed in countries like ours. And much harder, they stop kind of distributing those benefits somewhere in diffusion around the world. And so we've done studies and tried to raise consciousness of that and ways that national policies, both in the affluent North and in the global South, can actually spread those benefits more broadly. So that's kind of the big picture at global scale, which is quite abstract, for lots of people. In connection with that, I've, I've traveled to a number of countries. I've advised governments in a number of different parts of the world. And my colleagues and I have done a variety of case studies to try and illustrate all of that. The decision makers who would be an audience for that work are not real clear because there aren't good global decision-making processes. There's no president or Congress. There's nobody up there that gets elected by anybody in any of our countries to actually make decisions about that. So part of the picture is that the bodies that might care about that at a global level are weak in relation to all the stuff that's going on with big firms running around the world and countries pursuing their economic interests. The most interesting transition for me in the post-retirement era has been actually coming back and looking at the U.S. To some extent, those issues in the U.S., but just really coming to grips with where poverty comes from here. And that really, the location for that work for me started out being Quaker Voice on Washington Public Policy. We have three working groups criminal justice, economic justice, and environmental stewardship. I went to the economic justice group when I first got there. And because we're doing that in the context of Washington State legislative decision-making, that's what we focus on, I then started learning a lot more than I had looking at the global issues. I started learning about are things called welfare systems or safety nets about who was hungry in the state of Washington and even in our four states in North Pacific yearly meeting. And the ways that those systems are neglected, they're fragmented, it's really hard if you get pushed off the edge of the U.S. economic system to get a finger hold and get back on there. So essentially what we do in the U.S., including in the state of Washington, even though its heart is someplace else, is create our own poverty. 
mean, we don't really have to have poor people in this country, right? We've got lots of resources out there. If we decided that we wanted to take care of everybody, we could take care of everybody if we used our human resources in a way that took care of everybody. And we don't do that. Even simple things like raising benefits levels in some of the main programs get political opposition from people who are dragging out stereotypes of people not deserving the things that they're getting. So that set of issues has really brought me back home and has not affected Well, there's some connections to our technology-based industry from that other policy world that I was living in, and it's particularly visible in Washington because some people have noticed that in the Seattle area live some of the richest people in the world, Um, and actually they live a few miles from where I live, not right next door. And we have no income tax in the state of Washington, no state income tax. So we have the most upside down tax policy of any state in the country in a state that has some spectacularly rich people. So it's all very, very vivid in the state of Washington when we can't get people the resources that they want, when we can't get information systems to work with each other to deliver these benefits. So I started my sort of movement into thinking about poverty in the U.S. in the context of Quaker Voice. So then another big turning point for me was actually the George Floyd uprising, because here I am sitting in this new place in Washington, on the east side of the Seattle area, very affluent community. It's the hometown of Microsoft. And the question is really coming up insistently. It's not just that police violence is a problem. There's a whole system out there. There's a whole set of configurations of institutional racism that, as somebody put it at that point, one commentator, well, every police officer in the U.S. could be as polite as they want to be. And if you don't change the rest of that system, you haven't changed my life at all. At any rate, that was another big turning point for me. And I really started trying to come to grips with how can I change this community where I live? How are those institutions reflected in the place where I live in Redmond, Washington? And What can I do to change those systems? And so that's led me into actually more local action, which then adds to the what we're doing at state level, because all of our working groups for Quaker Voice are addressing those aspects of institutional racism in one way or another. The Economic Justice Group, a centerpiece piece of legislation they've followed is on guaranteed basic incomes which we're trying to at least get a state-level pilot on in the state of Washington. As I said, the hearts are really in the right place in Washington. It's actually quite a liberal state, but the money is just not there with this upside-down tax system. The Economic Justice Group also works on housing issues, which are a huge problem for us because of all the affluence in the community. That drives housing prices up. It drives homeless levels up affordable housing in the middle disappears. And there are champions in Washington that are working on that. And we are right there with them as Quaker Voice. And then the criminal justice group, as there's just issues up and down the criminal justice system that emerge and we choose legislation each year that the legislature convenes. We choose particular bills to follow. So 
for instance, trying to reform solitary confinement was one of the ones on, on that list. It's all really, really important stuff. So it reaches very deep into me and the things that I care about, that I want to be changing about my community, my country, and the world in many ways. If you change the U.S., there are a lot of things that would change about the world. Does this feel more fulfilling? I mean, theoretically, you're in retirement, but obviously not too tired because you're still burgeoning with energy. Does it feel more fulfilling to be working on this kind of policy stuff directly as opposed to what you were doing at Georgia Tech or Rensselaer or with the National Science Foundation? There's something about hands-on work, work that's addressing a specific issue and trying to make a change as opposed to coming up with studies that perhaps could be more fulfilling to you. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that what I'm doing now is more fully integrated into my life than the studies and the administration work that I was doing before. It's not that I didn't care about the graduate students who were under my purview at Georgia Tech, but what being retired has actually let me do is turn what I'm doing. It, it is research. It's a learning process. But it's a process that I have to do collectively in a community. So we are engaged. I am engaged with other people in Redmond trying to work on different ways of creating public safety. And that's hands-on work. I mean, I'm going to city council and uh, talking to council meetings. I'm trying to learn as much about the police force as I can and in some dialogue with our police chief around that. It's really right there because I know that the people who are going to be affected are on those streets with me. If I'm not acting, then the bad things that are rolling up in that system, the things that could be a lot better, are not happening. I mean, it's at that level. And likewise, with the state-level policy work, we know our shoulders are to the wheel. We're never making any of those wheels turn all by ourselves. We're working in coalitions. But we look for issues where a Quaker voice is actually distinctive. And we have heard that from legislators that we're working with. It's like, thank you for coming and giving that testimony. That was really helpful to me. We stick with things over a long period of time, and then those things change. Sometimes they change in unexpected ways. Like we worked on death penalty for ages. It had been on the agenda for a really long time, and it wasn't going anywhere legislatively in the state of Washington. If key leaders in the legislature don't want to move it, it's not going to move. The state Supreme Court finally ruled it unconstitutional according to the state constitution. So that was great. We actually didn't have the death penalty anymore, but the law was still on the books. So if you had a different court at some point in the future, imagine courts changing their minds about things again. Oh, that does <laughs> that, happen, doesn't it? never it? happens, right? But <laughs> at any rate, so, so there was this notion of we need to get the law off the books. And this year, some brilliant tactician packaged all of the 50 or 60 laws in the state of Washington that had been ruled unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court and just sent them together as a package. 
And who could object to taking all these laws off the books if they were actually unconstitutional? And the death penalty was in there, and we got the death penalty wow, this year. Got- and we didn't lift a finger this year, but it was something that we'd been working on for a long time. So there's your that's not quite a window of opportunity, but just brilliant packaging. And the governor didn't say a word about it until it was passed, until he signed off on that package of things. And then it was front page news in the Seattle Times, right? You mentioned about legislators commenting on the valuable input coming from Quakers. Quakers are still a a super tiny minority within the state of Washington. It's not like Quakers are a high percentage in any state in the United States. I assume you're working right alongside Catholics and Presbyterians and UCC, all of that. Do they all have equal advocacy-type programs like Quaker Voice on Washington public policy? We have something called the Faith Action Network, which is an interreligious group, and we do work with them. We're a member of the Faith Action Network and often have very similar legislative agendas. I have actually not run into like the Baptists or the Lutherans out there in Lobbyland. Maybe it's our inspiration from FCNL that I know that the formation of Quaker Voice was inspired by FCNL, but we work a lot in coalition. For our listeners out there to Spirit in Action, Friends Committee on National Legislation, FCNL, FCNL.org, and trace them down. They're doing great work all across the United States, but on a state level, Quaker Voice is kind of FCNL in Washington state size. Exactly. And that's exactly how it was modeled. And the N in FCNL is national legislation, and FCNL focuses like a laser beam on the on the national legislation on the federal level. But at any rate, we work a lot in coalitions of various sorts. For instance, the various staff members at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, are leading work on our traffic safety bill at this point that would reduce police involvement in things that they get involved in on the, on the roads and traffic stops. So we're working with them on that. In the criminal justice area, we're in some very strong coalitions with formerly incarcerated people, and we listen in those coalition meetings. We hear the leadership of other groups and are not trying to impose our own. But we're also good at speaking up, and what we're told by our professional lobbyist who's just been with us for a couple of years is the beauty of being Quakers in that policy space is that they know that we are lobbying for everybody. We're lobbying for the public. We are lobbying for the people out there and not for a special interest. And of course, they get lots of special interest lobbyists. Or our environmental group, our environmental stewardship group is really lobbying for the environment. They are choosing legislation to support that's going to make Washington a cleaner place that's safer for our relatives, the orcas and the, the salmon in the rivers, that the trees are, are safer as part of that environment that we're living in. So we can speak up really effectively. Certainly the history of Quakers as a progressive force is, is helpful in that. And then we now have quite a track record. So they know when we're coming and they know the kinds of things that we're going to be joining with them on. 
folks were speaking with Susan Cousins, who is currently active with the Quaker Voice on Washington Public Policy website, QuakerVoiceWA.org. The link is on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Come here and follow all my guests. You can track down all my guests of the past 19 years. You dealt with issues of inequality internationally. You're doing more focus on that nationally. But I saw one of the interesting articles and research that you did was about effects of artificial intelligence related to inequality. And I'd love to hear what you know about that, or maybe it was so much in its infantile stage at the point where you were doing that research. I have a feeling that this year, all of a sudden, the need to research is going to go zooming through the sky. What did you learn about that? And why is why artificial intelligence and inequality? I should really refer you to my colleague, Greg Cox, who's the clerk of the Quaker Institute for the Future, who is just rolling out a book on a Quaker approach to the ethics of artificial intelligence, because the ethical angle is enormous. There's lots of issues there. There are very few inequality angles in that ethical discussion, maybe for better or for worse. The issue that I was writing on was out of a consultant job that I did for uh, United Nations agency. And in the international context, the question was, is the introduction of artificial intelligence into production processes going to increase inequality between countries? And is it going to increase inequality within countries? And that was a very scary issue for governments from, and, and still is for that matter, for governments from the global south. The initial scare, and I think it's coming up again with the latest developments, is that artificial intelligence will actually destroy a bunch of jobs, that it will put lots and lots of people out of work. Basically, all jobs is the way I see it. Once you've got 3D printing and other forms of creating things, when the artificial intelligence can create its own tools, shall we say, that's why guaranteed basic income is absolutely necessary going into the future, because obviously we won't need truck drivers when trucks can drive themselves and we won't. Basically, all jobs, people will no longer be represented by their value as production units, that we can be replaced by something better. The Economist ran a very interesting analysis that somebody did of which jobs were least threatened and which jobs were most threatened, at least by the versions of artificial intelligence that were coming out about uh, seven or eight years ago. And the headline on their graphic for that was bring on the personal trainers, because it turns out that there are a lot of jobs that people do that you actually need a human being for, like what AI is going to meet you at the gym and run you through your uh, your push-ups and your uh, leg pulls or whatever it is that you're doing. So there, there actually are quite a lot of jobs that none of the people who have actually studied these things think artificial intelligence will uh, replace them completely. But again, there's going to have to be a whole new threat assessment with the latest round that are coming out. But at any rate, 
So mass unemployment would certainly raise issues of inequality within countries, as well as this feeling from the global south that, oh, this is all just moving so fast that we're never going to be able to catch up. There was nothing to build from in lots of countries to have a homegrown artificial intelligence capability. So those were the issues. And I read through 25 or 30 national plans for the development of artificial intelligence. And there weren't a lot of really good ideas for addressing that. There were a lot of projections of we're going to have tens of thousands of new high-skill IT jobs with uh, information technology jobs without an idea of where the people were going to come from to fill them. Or, oh, we're going to take care of all the any gender biases in artificial intelligence algorithms by having more women engineers. It was, it was pretty weak stuff. So all those challenges in terms of who's going to make money, how are they going to make it? And uh, what are we going to do if that's not all through private markets? Those questions are still out there. I was intrigued with the point that you made, Susan, when you mentioned that FCNL, the French Committee on National Legislation, you said they're laser-focused on national legislation, whereas Quaker Voice on Washington Public Policy is focused on stuff in the state of Washington. And I hadn't taken into account, it's all, it's like, well, these are laws, right? You know, and I, I realized that we have states with different laws. I, of course, I knew that, but how is it different for you than the folks working with FCNL? Does this change the possible? Does it change what's important? Does it change what you have the resources to do by focusing at the state level? It's interesting. There are a number of places where the state decision makers make decisions within the context of a federal law. So there are interface areas, particularly in some of the big safety net programs like temporary assistance to needy families, because states can decide levels of support that they're going to put into that, and the federal and the state programs work together. But there are some issues that are just off our plate completely in the state of Washington, because we don't have any decision makers that are actually going to be able to make up their minds about that nuclear weapons is one of those really clearly. We have plenty of Quakers in the state of Washington who really care about the huge new investments that are being proposed in that area, who care about the fact that we have a major fleet of nuclear-powered submarines that's anchored right off our coast near Seattle, but we have no state-level decision-makers on that. So we can talk to our elected people who are in Washington, D.C., who are in the other Washington, but there's very little to be done. And actually, some of our dams, too, we really care about our salmon in the Northwest, and they need to be able to swim up rivers. And all these dams that the federal government built keep a lot of salmon from swimming up rivers. So there's some that it makes a lot of sense to take down. And again, we have plenty of Quakers who are really, really care about that issue and are active on that issue. But there's very little that the state government can actually do to encourage that. It's because they're federal dams. So yes, the issues are different. Police, however, police and most prison issues are very much state level issues and not federal. There are federal prisons, but they're a relatively small part of the prison system. So there's a lot of state decision-making in that area. And I'm happy to report that our state-level groups work very cooperatively with 
the FCNL, the Friends Committee on National Legislation Group, that deals with federal legislation in that area, too. We're very symbiotic. The good news that we can actually announce here is that there are now seven Quaker state-level lobby organizations, some of them older, and the newest one that was just added is based in the Philadelphia area and is Pennsylvania and a little regional because there's some regional decision-making. But Washington and California have been the only two that have have paid lobbyists at all. And then there are all volunteer ones in North Carolina, in Maryland, in Indiana and Maine, and then a brand new one in Pennsylvania. What's the new one in Pennsylvania called or what's what's its domain? Is it just Philadelphia or is it state? It's state level, but may actually draw in some of New Jersey because cap and trade systems which is an environmental wonk thing, will often go over state boundaries. So they have some jurisdiction there. And I believe it's Quaker Action for the Mid-Atlantic Region, but I don't know whether they have a website yet. I'll try and include those links on NortonSpiritRadio.org, folks. One last thing I want to ask you about, and that is, can you identify in your work with Quaker Voice on Washington Public Policy. Can you identify any big wins, the stuff that the organization did that made a change, that tipped the scales, that got things passed? You've mentioned some things that happened, some which you said you didn't have control over, (laughs) but are there things where you feel like, yes, my time investment, we tipped the scales? To some extent, no, because people in legislative advocacy work in coalition so much that there's nothing, well, I'm going to come up with an example of something that Quaker Voice actually introduced, and it's an old one. But generally, we are working with other people, but there are big wins for sure. We had major rollbacks in legal financial obligations to give judges discretion to let people off from tickets and fines that had accumulated where they clearly didn't have the resources to pay them back. That's a huge thing for keeping people out of the system. And we restored voting rights a few years ago for people who were on the period of time, kind of probationary period after prison. And that gave the vote back to about 20,000 people in the state of Washington. There's some, you can get some really big impacts out there. The one thing that I know that we introduced, and this is actually really a nice example, because we introduced some language allowing restorative justice practices to be used in a particular place in the criminal justice system that wasn't there before. And it was our lobbyist who introduced that, that became law. And then to open the door for restorative of justice as one of the avenues available in the criminal justice system is actually pretty remarkable. I can't believe how lucky Washington State is that they have four of your grandchildren there that served as a magnet to pull you to the state. I've been told by people, I'm from Wisconsin, so I haven't been watching things on the ground here, but I've been told that you energized and led to a completely reinvigorated system here. And so I just think that Washington's lucky, and I think therefore the United States is lucky, and therefore I think the world is lucky that somehow Susan Cousins was drawn to Washington State and found the work of her life flourishing in retirement. So thank you so much for following that passion, bringing your energy, and being a change maker, a world healer as you are. Thank you so much. It's always my blessing to be able to help, and Washington's been a wonderful opportunity for me. 
I'll have links to a lot of places, to FCNL, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, Faith Action Network, Quaker Voice, WA.org will be linked. All of these are on northernspiritradio.org, so you don't have to write them all down right now. Join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh